Hi, and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our desire is to see people all around the world burn for one name, Jesus. We pray that you experience the love and power of Him through this journey. Thank you for joining us, and may burning witnesses arise. All right, so in a moment, we're going to turn to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to jump into what I believe the Lord has put in my heart for us tonight. Um, but I, I, I wholeheartedly encourage you with fresh expectation not to minimize the moment that we may be standing in, right? We, we have a saying on the inside. It's kind of like a family cultural type thing. It's, man, if God is going to touch anybody, I want him to touch me, right? For some, we, we may be accustomed to giving and giving and pouring and contributing and sowing and serving and all of these things, but, but, but I want to encourage you tonight that your role, your responsibility, your call, your gift does not exempt you from the place of God touching you, that it does not exempt you from God having you in his bullseye, on his radar, desiring to touch you, transform you, encounter you. And so just let fresh expectation fill your heart tonight that all, all of the other stuff can be set aside. Because tonight, what I really want most, and if there's one thing that I could have, this is what I will seek. Like David says in Psalm 27, I want to encounter God, to behold him in his temple, to see him and to be changed by him him. Um, And if that cry is in your heart, then I believe that God is always ready and willing to answer that cry. Um, So Lord, as we are here tonight, rallied together, uh, I'm asking you, King Jesus, to do what only you can do. Would you raise up a people in this place that would love you more than any other And every other. Would you raise up a people that have been radically transformed by the power of your spirit, alive and on fire on the inside of their hearts? Would you raise up a people that have been born again and they're being conformed to your image and they've aligned their lives with your mission and they've been released into the nations and they are living as a powerful demonstration of what it is that you desire? King Jesus, would you do something tonight in this room? Would you do something tonight in this room to have this people that you deserve? This people that you deserve. Um, You deserve a people that would give you this yes. You deserve a people that would love you even unto death. You deserve a people that would honor you with the yes that comes off of their life. You deserve this people um, because you determined that this people was to die for. And you have purchased a people for God with your own blood. And so, Jesus, have your inheritance. Jesus, have your possession. Jesus, raise up your bride, your family, in this hour of history. And use them in revival unto the return of the Lord. To ready the nations. Thank you that you're coming again. Thank you that you will take your rightful place. Um, But I pray in here tonight, take your rightful place in our hearts and bring us to the point where we would be willing to look deeply into your face, count the cost, and say, yes, you are worth it. You can have it all, Lord. Would you raise up this people tonight? Would you raise up this people tonight in this room? Jesus is king, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. As you are looking at Acts chapter 2, It will be my goal to read a portion of scripture that is possibly very familiar to you. It's going to be Acts chapter 2 all the way down. We'll set the context and roll with this thing for a little bit. In Acts chapter 2 verse 42, 
we find they were continually devoting themselves. Another way of reading that, depending on the translation that you have, is that they were daily giving themselves over to. They were committed, but it was beyond a mere commitment. You see, commitments are things that you can measure. You can weigh them. You can determine the amount of effort or the level to which you are going to engage. It was beyond a sheer commitment. They were convicted deeply on the inside. And it was a response to something that had radically happened on the inside. And it says that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, And to prayer. They were daily giving themselves over to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, meals together, and to prayer. Now, to set the stage, this is in response to what we would know to be the day of Pentecost. We know that they've been with Jesus for 40 days in Acts chapter 1. And Luke, in his conclusion, at the end of his gospel, it tells us very plainly that Jesus is back. He's alive from the dead. He had been seemingly gone for three days. All hope seemed to be lost. Many of them returned to the life that they had previously known. They were scattered once all of what they had invested in and the anchor that they had laid deeply into the hope that was rising upon the life of this man that claimed to be a king and that would come with his kingdom. Many of them, when Jesus was laid into the grave after facing the brutal execution that was the crucifixion, many of them went back to an old way of life. But he's back. He's alive from the dead. And he said to them, for a period of 40 days, Acts 1 tells us that he taught them about the kingdom. He wasn't just with them sharing everything and anything, but there was a very specific thing that was on his heart, alive from the dead, that he felt it to be vital that they understood He was sharing with them things pertaining to the fullness of his kingdom. This is 40 days face to face with Jesus. And he is a man glorified, conquering hell, conquering death. He is alive on the other side. And he is sharing his heart with them for 40 days. This is a 40-day conference where Jesus is the only speaker. And it's all day long. There's no other option. It's Jesus only. And he is giving kingdom instruction and impartation. And out of this, he tells them, as if this could not possibly be enough, he says, don't do anything yet. Go and wait. Because my father is going to send you power. The spirit is coming. And it's going to touch the things that I have instructed to you and imparted to you so that you can carry it the way that I desire for you to. It's not going to be knowledge alone, but the Spirit is going to come with great fire and power. And it's going to bring those things to life on the inside. And he said, don't do anything until it actually comes. Don't just run around trying to fake it till you make it. Don't return to empty forms of religiosity and the things that you know that you have been brought up with, but go and tarry. Tarry how long, bro? Like, I got a life. I got things going on. Wait until he actually comes. Wait until you know that he's touched you. Wait until you know that he's put fire on you. Wait until you know that he's actually breathed on you. Wait until you know that you've had a visitation. Wait until you know that he smeared you with oil. Wait until you know that he's actually come and done something that's transformed you and you're not what you used to be. Go and tarry. And they go and they wait together. And we know the Holy Ghost visits them and there's wind and there's fire. They're all filled because there's enough to go around. He's not stingy. There's enough to go around. But after this encounter, 
they're thrown out into the streets. And they're mocked. They're criticized. They're ridiculed. There's a lot of misunderstanding. Everyone has their opinions and they are freely hurling them at them. It's almost like the comment section on social media. But Peter stands up in the midst and he says, no, no, this is none of those things. This is what God is doing. And Peter begins to deliver a powerful address to all of those that were gathered that day. And Peter begins to preach, not just, it's more than inspired, under the unction of the Spirit. Peter begins to release the word of the Lord. And when you come towards the latter portion of Acts chapter 2, it says in verse 37 that in response to the things that Peter shared, they said, oh my goodness, what must we do? Here's the idea. The Bible says that after Peter preached that their hearts were pierced. It says, and in response to their hearts being pierced by the word of the Lord, Peter got up and he shared God's desires. And he laid down to to them the things that actually matter to God. And in response to what matters to God, they said in their own hearts, we have to do something about this. What must we do? The idea is that if everything you are saying is true, then I can no longer live my life the way that I've been living it. If what you're sharing is reality, if everything that you've just revealed that has come crashing into my heart, if that is the way that it is, then it has put a demand on my life that I rearrange everything about who it is that I've known myself to be because I can't live the way that I've been living if all of this is true what must I do in response to what it is that you have just said because Peter told them what mattered to God you see and there, there has to come a moment in all of our lives where we ask ourselves the question do I know what matters to God Do I know what actually matters? Because let let me encourage you this way and let me submit something to you. At the end of the age, there is going to be certain things that actually matter. But at the end of the age, what we would call the culmination of time and history, when the sign of the Son of Man comes and Jesus is riding upon the cloud, there will be certain things that actually matter. And the things that actually matter will be the things that actually matter to God. The things that matter at the end of the age will be the things that matter to God. It will not be the things that mattered to the world. It will not be the things that mattered to our entertainment-driven culture. It will not be the things that mattered on my social media line. It will not be the things that mattered by all of those that rallied around me with their opinions and their ideas and all of their vain, worldly, lustful ambitions and desires. The things that will matter at the end of the age will be the things that actually mattered to God himself. And there has to be a moment in our hearts where we ask ourselves the question, do I even know what matters to God? Do I know what he cares about? Do I know what he's interested in? Do I know the things that he's after? Do I know the plan that he has inaugurated? Do I know the purpose with which he is working? I love the verse that was mentioned towards the end of worship. He is working all things together for good to those that love him, that are called according to his name and his purpose. Whose purpose? His purpose. God has a purpose. Paul would have prayed it this way in Colossians 1. He said, ever since I've heard about you, he's talking about new believers in Colossae. Ever since I've heard about you, there's been one thing that I've been praying for you. He says, I've been praying that you be filled with the knowledge of God's will. 
in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you can walk in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He said, ever since I heard about you, I've been praying for you that if there's one thing that gets deeply rooted in your heart, if there's one thing that actually comes alive on the inside, if there's one place where we can dig and build and lay down an anchor, this is what I'm asking for you, that you be filled with the knowledge of God's will. God has a will. God has a purpose with which he is working from within the frame of time and creation. There is something specific that God has been doing. There is a plan. These are not just random sequences of events, but God is orchestrating all of time and history and working from within creation in order to superintend all of time towards a specific conclusion. And if we do not understand the things that are ultimate, the things that are ultimate, then it will be very easy to get derailed in and with the things that are immediate. Because what is ultimate needs to inform what is immediate. What is ultimate needs to inspire the things we give ourselves to in an immediate sense. And there are things that God considers to be ultimate. And the purpose with which he is working in time and creation, he is using all things, ups, downs, celebrations, sorrows, friends, foes. He is using all things in order to drive history by a wisdom that he has. Isaiah says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. I'm not like you. I don't think like you. I don't behave like you. I won't be controlled by you, but I have a wisdom and a desire and I am the one that is steering all of time and creation towards a purpose that I have said is good. And if we don't understand what actually matters to God, then it will be very easy to get caught up in the current of immediate things, things that are trendy, things that are relevant, things that only matter in a particular moment. We become a prisoner of the immediacy of life and emotion and the perception and discernment of what success actually means. But the way that we arrive at the conclusion for our definition of success will be constructed by the world standards. Even worse, the influence of the powers of the air and the spirit of the age or the opinions of people that are not necessarily in alignment with the things that are on God's heart for the ultimate things. Because we don't have the excuse anymore to create a definition of success outside of the things that God has considered to be ultimate. First Peter 1 would tell us, you've been redeemed, not with perishable things, not with worldly insignificant things, but there's a precious and a powerful blood that you've actually been bought with. And it is this blood that has set you free from the empty man-made traditions that have been handed down to you by your forefathers. Peter says this blood has actually set you free from the religious hoops and the rhythms and the hurdles and all of the empty forms of religiosity, yet denying the power thereof that you've been bought with a blood that is real and is powerful and it has set you free. Peter says you cannot any longer come to the conclusion for your definition of success by your adherence to these things anymore. Paul would have said in Philippians 3, everything that I used to know, I now consider it to be rubbish. The way that I've built my resume in life, you can trash that. The things I've gone after, the things that I used to appreciate, the things I used to do so that people would appreciate me. 
He says, I have one jealousy now. I have one concern now. There's one thing that I'm after. I want to know him and I want to make him known. You can have all the other stuff. My entire definition of success has been radically transformed. There is only one thing that matters to me now, and it's the things that actually matters to him. But if I don't know what matters to him, then I'll give myself to things that matter to me. And there has to come a point where you ask yourself, especially for those of us that are building, those of us that are laboring, those of us who feel like we are constructing things in faithfulness for God in our moment of history, in this moment, there's a question that we have to answer to, and it is this. Are we building something we want? Or are we building him something he wants? Are we building him something that he wants? Are we building him something that's in accordance with what we know it is that he desires? Are we after what he is after? Do I even know the things that matter? Because if I know the things that matter, then the things that matter, I have to make them matter. And Peter preaches to them on that day. And he shares the word of the Lord. And their response to what Peter shares is I have to do something. Because I, I, I can't do what I've been doing anymore. I can't give my life to the things that I've been giving my life to anymore. What I've been doing no longer makes sense now that what has been revealed has been revealed. My heart has now been filled with revelation and now revelation puts a demand on the rearranging of my life. And they say, what do we actually have to do? And Peter shares with them. He says, repent. Okay, turn from your own way of life. Right? No longer do it your way. Now we're going to do it God's way. He says, be baptized. Be filled with the Spirit. This is all one flow of thought as it's happening in real time. Now what's amazing is that when we get down to the verse that we read, there is no separation in the flow of thought. <laughs> Why does that even matter? Why would that even be something that we would try to create a point of emphasis or to make it important? The idea is this. When you respond to God this way, this is now what your life should look like. When you have had your heart pierced in a revelatory way, you've seen Jesus. You're willing to give him everything. You've pledged your allegiance to him as king. You are laying down your own life. Your definition of success is now radically being transformed. The things that you used to live for, you're not living for them anymore. Your heart is literally on fire and you want to walk with him and be faithful to him and align your life with his mission that he is on throughout the nations and you understand that you're now a living demonstration. You're a representative. You're an ambassador. My life is not my own. Well, if that is the category that your life fits into... This is the idea, the implications that Acts brings us to. This is now what your life should look like. In response to revelation and having their lives radically reconfigured, the new configurations of your life, this is what it needs to look like. And they daily gave themselves. Well, that's, that's a little problematic for those of us that are weekly. Or once a week, they daily gave themselves to a life rhythm. The idea is that because of what God did in them and what God was after in the nations, it required a certain wineskin with which that new wine would actually be stewarded well. And that new wine was put into a wineskin and this is the prescription for a powerful life in God. Now that sounds super simple because nothing was super sexy about what we just read. They gave themselves to the apostles' teaching on a daily basis. They gave themselves to prayer. They gave themselves to sharing meals together. They gave themselves to fellowship. This is the recipe for success. This is the ingredients, the components, 
This is the recipe to develop powerful, on-fire, living demonstrations of the things that God actually desires and what he considers to be ultimate. This is the blueprint as to how we arrive at the destination that God wants and not the things that we want. Because they knew what God was after. But do we? I could tell you that we might be able to survey the landscape of the nations. And you might be troubled to be able to arrive with a specific list of things that you can conclude that God is actually doing. But I promise you this. There are a few things that God is doing right now that he considers to be ultimate. These are not things that are immediate. They are not things that are supplemental. They are not things that are peripheral or secondary by any stretch of the imagination. As a matter of fact, I would suggest to you that these handful of things, you can take them to the bank. What is God actually doing? Because if he's working all things towards what he says is good and is in perfect alignment with his purpose, then what is that purpose that he has said is good, that he is working all things together to make sure that he has? Because what God wants, he is going to have. No devil can stop him. The free will that resides in our own life cannot bring compromise to God's overall ultimate plan. The things that God wants, he is going to have. And the first thing that God wants is a family. What's a vision wild enough to die for? What's a cause and a call that would be worth your life? There's a million things that you can live for and give yourself to. There's one thing that God saw fit to come himself and to die to make sure that he would have at the end of the age. Are we willing to die for the same thing that God was? Are we willing to lay our life down to make sure that God can have the thing that he has said he wants most? God is a family man. Revelation 21, 3 and 4 would tell us this way. There's coming a day when God will come. And he will abolish death forever. He will wipe every teary eye dry. He will right every wrong. And it will be said in those days that God abides in the midst of his people forever and ever. God longs to have a people that he can share himself with forever and ever. God is going to abolish death. He is going to bring judgment and eviction to powers, principalities, rulers of the age, the wicked one, the spirit of darkness. All of that is going to be removed from the human experience forever and ever. And God will abide. He will create a habitation for himself in the midst of a family. Because God is a family man. And he longs to have a family where he and the spirit and his son and the bride that his son deserves can rule in the place of creation forever and ever. God is setting the stage. The second thing that God is after, I promise you he's doing these things. He's after a family. He's setting the stage for his son to take his rightful place as the ruler of all things in creation. We know that in Psalm 2, when the nations rage, when they're hostile against the ancient of days and his anointed one, when all of the nations and the rulers of the age, powers and principalities, they're hostile against God and against his plan and purpose for creation and created ones. They are trying to derail God's desires for what it is that he has purposed to do. When this is happening, it says that the son is seated at the right hand. That he's at rest. He's not, he's not scrambling. He's not worried. He's not filled with all this angst 
man, what am I going to do about this? Oh, man, didn't really never saw that coming. Oh, man, how am I going to handle that? Oh, man, they got the best of me here. It says that he's seated. He's at rest. And the psalmist even says in, ver- in chapter 2 that he laughs. And he's waiting for the moment when his father will release him to come again and to make all of his enemies a footstool. Psalm 110, we know that there's coming a day when he will rule in the midst of his enemies. That when the rightful ruler returns, he will take his rightful place. When he steps off the cloud onto the Mount of Olives, he will establish his throne, the rightful heir to the throne, the descendant of David, the son of man. He will establish for himself a throne and rule all of creation from Jerusalem. The third thing is God is readying the bride that his son deserves. Revelation 19, 7 tells us that at that moment, when the bride has made herself ready, that we will join him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb will be the moment where the father is able to present to the son the bride that he deserves. Where Jesus can receive and possess the people that he thought was to die for. Where in that moment, Jesus will finally have his inheritance, his reward in the fullest way that he desires. I know we come to God often with our desires and our demands, reminding him of the things that we want and the dream that we have yet to see fulfilled. But let me just encourage you and suggest to you that Jesus has a dream too. And the fire has a burning, the father has a burning longing in his heart. He longs to give his son the bride that he thought was to die for. He longs to present to his son a people that will love him more than any other. He longs to present to his son the one that he is joyfully honored and established and turned over everything that belongs to him. He says, I am awaiting the day, the moment when I can finally give you what it is that you deserve. What is it that Jesus deserves? He deserves a people. And maybe you've never considered that at the end of the age, the reward that Jesus gets is you. You're the dream that he has. Daniel saw it in his dream, his vision in chapter 7. He saw a people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. A beautiful people. Right, The church carries the solution to the racial woes of the world. Because the church is a beautiful people where we're no longer giving way to preferences and ethnic distinctions. Where it's no longer color of skin or language or nation as a way of catering to or creating a category for our conversation. As a matter of fact, we believe that the gospel has created its own conversation. And now all of the eternal enmity and the wall of hostility has been torn down. And now Jew and Gentile have been reconciled. All the brokenness has been put into the one that was with willing to be broken on our behalf and we are now the expression of one new man we carry the solution but our conversation doesn't start with the world the gospel has created its own conversation And we are inviting the world out of its conversation because of the way that Jesus has now made way for a renewed version of humanity And he is repopulating the nations with a redeemed, renewed creation. We are a people that are born again. We are called the bride. We are not just a polished up version of what you used to be. You're not just the old you that now adopted a Jesus language and knows how to post fancy Jesus memes on Instagram. But you are a new version of human. Paul would say, for any man that is in Christ, he is a new creature. You are a new creature. You are not what you used to be. 
You are not the same as everyone else. God has made provision to share himself with those that yield their lives to him. And he has filled them. He has put fire in them and he is radically transforming them. It is his desire that those that have come to believe would be conformed to the image of his son. He does not want you to be the best worldly Christian you can be. He wants you to look like Jesus. Because you can succeed at being a worldly Christian and actually not be Christ-like at all. We can attend our meetings, give in our offerings, pray before meals, take a trip every once in a while, and not actually be conformed to the image of his son. The mandate of the Christian life is not to do Christian exploits, but it's to become Christ-like. Where we would repopulate the nations with a people that look like Jesus. With a renewed version of humanity. Filled with God's spirit. Aligned with his mission. Living as ambassadors. This is the goal. God's rescue mission for the nations is a family. It's a family that's on fire. It's a family that carries his spirit. It's a family that looks like Jesus. It's a family that's been baptized into a certain way of life. It's a family that knows what God wants. It's a family that can see him. They behold him, become like him, and now give themselves to the things that he says is ultimate until he should return. And the last thing that God is after. Now, again, I told you that you may be able to come up with a whole bunch of more things. But I promise you he's doing the things that I've just talked about. He is setting the stage so he can have a family. He is setting the stage so that his son can take his rightful place. He is setting the stage so that his son can be presented with the bride that he deserves. And he is setting the stage to reconcile all of creation and to free it from the corruption that it realizes it has been subjected to. This is Paul's charge in Romans 8, 19, which is typically where we stop. All of creation is groaning, longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. But verse 20 is equally as important because even creation realizes that it has been subjected to corruption and it is longing for its redemption whenever God will make right everything that is wrong. And even creation itself knows that things are not right. No matter how right things can feel, it will not be as right as they are going to be because they cannot be right until Jesus takes his rightful place. And even creation knows that it's been subjected to brokenness and corruption and the tyranny of sin because of the jurisdiction of powers. But God is setting the stage where even corruption is going to be evicted and all of creation is going to be redeemed. These are the things that matter to God. And I promise you that anything and everything that is serving and helping to further develop and fulfill these things, God is using and working together because he has called these things good. And at the end of the age, these are the things that God has considered to be ultimate. And these are the things that he is absolutely going to make sure that he has. And in response... To hearing Peter's words, they said, we've got to do something. Because what I've been doing is not aligned with that. The things that have mattered to me are not in alignment. They're not synchronized with the things that ultimately matter to God. The things that I've been building, what I've been laboring for, what I've been giving my life to, the definition of success that I've created, all of the accomplishments that I've been talking about, all of the way that I allow people to applaud my life, it has not been in exact proportion with the things that God has said ultimately matter to him. We've got to do something. But what do they do? They begin giving themselves daily to a certain way of life. 
I would encourage you that carrying out the things that God reveals requires a way of life. It requires a daily conviction. It requires a daily devoting yourself to. It's not a once and a every while. It's not a once a week. There must be a daily committing, a daily devoting, a daily convicted that what God wants, I will give my life to make sure that he has. And the way that they stewarded that was to give themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, and to sharing meals. Well, bro, listen, that that sounds kind of boring in relationship to what we've talked about. That doesn't sound like there's going to be any hope to be able to produce the things that God ultimately is after. If we give ourselves to these things that seem insignificant, these things that are not attractive, these things that don't necessarily rally crowds, these things that don't raise money well, these things that don't get a lot of likes and followers and subscribers, because family is an offensive idea. Family is an offensive idea because man can't take the credit for it. Family is God's idea. Family is not an idea that man can franchise and merchandise and create all of these little calls and conferences and try to mass produce. Family is not something that man can point back to himself. But family is the thing that God has said he's after. And family is the way that God has already prescribed that what he is doing in the nations is best carried. When we look at the way they were thrown out into the streets and the response that they had, nothing was easy for them after that. They gave themselves to a way of life. And it's important because whenever you go to Acts 2, everybody's like, oh, here we go again, right? Rediscovering the ancient ways of church rediscovering apostolic foundations and all of... Acts is not only history. Acts is prophecy. Because Acts is a prototype for the church at the end of the age. Acts is a prescription. It's a blueprint for life in God as we lean in towards the end of the age. As darkness continues to increase and sin continues to abound, even into the season where the man of lawlessness is fully revealed and darkness will permeate the nations unlike any time period in history we've ever known. So much so that Jesus said himself in Matthew 24, had those days not been cut short, no one would actually be able to persevere. Acts is a prophecy. And what's important is that if we understand the recipe, eventually if we track well through the book of Acts, we can realize the product. (laughs) Because wisdom is known by her children. And you can call wise whatever you want to call wise. But after a time, your decisions give birth. And wisdom is known by her children. The implications are is that decisions have consequences because consequences give birth. And over a time period in the beginning, you can call wise whatever you want to call wise. You can have your ideas. You can have your dream. You can have your theories. You can have your opinions. You can rally agreement with things that you've considered to be wisdom. But there must be at a certain time period an evaluation. And let's look at the evaluation that happens as we progress through the book of Acts. Because Acts 2.42 gives us the undercurrent. It's what's happening beneath the surface and behind the scenes. And then Acts begins to detail what is happening on the streets, out in public, the way that they were demonstrating what it was that God was developing them in as they were living in a certain way of life together. As they were living in a certain way of life together, Acts begins to define what it is that this way of life actually produces. Because if it's really wisdom, we have to evaluate it and see what has been birthed. The consequences of what we said was real wisdom. And we have the consequences. 
In chapter 3, it says that Peter and John are going to the temple at the time of prayer. It says that healings break out in the streets. They're laying hands on people. It says that they're beaten, that they're taken to jail. It says that when they get out of jail, the first place they go is a prayer meeting. Let, Let me encourage you, if you've just been bailed out, is the first place you're running to a prayer meeting? is the first place you're going to the gathering of the saints. But it says that they rallied together, understanding that there was intense fire that had hit their life, understanding that there was real pressure and persecution, knowing that there was consequences for what it was that God was doing in their life. And this is what they prayed. Give us more boldness. Give us more fire. Give us more courage. We're not trying to hide from this thing. We've already determined that you're worth it. Give us a fresh filling. They were filled afresh after the place was shaken. Fill us afresh so that we can get back out there. There's nothing else that we would rather do. We can't just go back to the things we used to know. We're not trying to escape the call. Send us back out. And they do. Man, people are dying because there's a purity and an authenticity. It says that Fear has gripped the whole city because nobody really wanted to deal with them because of the way that God was abiding in the midst of them. It wasn't a joke. God had actually inhabited. He had possessed a family. It says that the leaders were jealous. Religious folks were jealous. They were trying to create assassination attempts. They were pulling them and jailing them. When they jailed them in Acts 5, it says that angelic assistance came and an angel did not only set them free from prison, but told them, go straight to the town square, preach to them this whole message of life. Don't back down. God is with you. You're the man for the moment. And they jump right back out in the streets. Bro, now, hold on, man. If I've already been to jail one time, right? If I've been beaten out in the streets, If I am facing intense persecution because of the call, there is going to be a great impossibility for me to sustain something that is not real on the inside. I'm just trying to fake it till I make it. I'm just trying to hang out with the right crowd. I've just adopted a new language. I'm just buying the merch and liking the pages. Something actually happened to them. Something actually happened to them. And what happened inside of them was powerful enough to sustain all of the persecution that was rallying around them. All of the fire and the consequence. Then in chapter 6, I don't know how your Bible subtitles it, but in chapter 6, my Bible subtitles it, The Choosing of Stephen. The Choosing of Stephen. And it says that there's an issue that arises Right? There's problems in the food pantry. They bring it to the apostles. They're like, bro, listen, we've got to get away from this. We've got to give ourselves to the ministry of prayer and the word. What are we going to do? Here's the remedy. You guys figure it out. Grab us seven guys that are full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. Now listen to this. You need to be full of the Spirit and have wisdom to serve in the food pantry. But like the requirements were so much higher. <laughs> right nowadays, we're looking for anybody that'll just show up on a regular basis. We got people that ain't even all the way saved, but, he, but he's 30% and he's in route. You know what I mean? Like he's almost, no, no, no. Jesus had greater standards than we do. <laughs> he told the rich young ruler, go and give away all of your stuff. Right? Nowadays, we say, no, 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 bro, you ain't got to give that stuff away. That's going to be a great kingdom resource. Right? Like, God's going to use your influence. He's going to use your wealth. Right? No, that's wisdom. Jesus said, no, real wisdom is give it all away, then come back. Now you're ready to follow me. These guys needed to be full of the Holy Ghost and have wisdom. And it had to be a corporate conclusion. (laughs) Not just the one buddy that you know you can drag in that's going to vouch for you. Right? Like when you need a job reference, you're going to call that guy that that possibly is going to lie for you. Get us seven guys that are full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. And Stephen's the first one they mention. Stephen's the first one they mention. And they lay hands on them that day and ordain them to the food pantry. 
But Acts moves quickly. Because right after they're ordained to the food pantry, it says all of a sudden, Stephen surfaces out in the streets. And there's signs, wonders, and miracles on his life. There is a powerful demonstration that Stephen is living as a burning witness. He has wisdom that is irrefutable. None of the leaders, none of the, the, the lawmakers and governors could do anything with the spirit that was actually residing on the inside of Stephen. Stephen surfaces because Acts reads fast. It reads quick, and so it would seem like Stephen served for a couple of hours in the food pantry, and then all of a sudden he popped out when his shift was over, and now there's this incredible thing that's happening in his life. But what I would like to encourage you with is that we need to understand the time frame that Acts is working with. Stephen would have been one that was saved on the day of Pentecost. He would have been one that was in the crowd responding to Peter's preaching. His heart would have been pierced. He would have responded by giving over his life. What do I do now? Well, the only thing that makes sense when you have a response like this is to give your life to this. And Stephen is now living in a way of life that is actually producing something on the inside of him. It's developing this witness that we see later in Acts chapter 6. And it's not just a day or a month or a week. Eight to ten years have passed by by the time that Stephen is now standing in the streets what is the point there is no overnight success there is no overnight success Stephen gets up in the streets and he has been in the trenches he has been with God and a people giving himself to a way that God has prescribed is the recipe for developing a powerful person an on-fire witness. And Stephen is out in the streets. Signs, wonders, miracles. Let me ask you, have, if what you've been doing, has it been producing this? Signs, wonders, miracles. Wisdom that can't be refuted. A spirit about him that cannot be countered. Stephen is out in the streets and he's not just there, but they come against him. And as they come against him, it says that his face begins to glow like an angel in Acts 6.15. It says his face is radiant. The psalmist says those who look to him, he'll never disappoint them. and Their faces will be radiant. There was a glow about Stephen that you couldn't fake. Let me, just, let me just tell you, you can't fake what's on your face. You can't fake what's on your face. Moses came down from the mountain. Other people had to tell him that his face was glowing. Other people had to tell him that his face was glowing. He wasn't going to the top of the mountain to meet with God so he could get the face glow anointing. So that he could launch face glowing meetings. Right? He went to the top of the mountain just to be with God. And when he came back, other people had to tell him what had happened to him. Stephen is out in the streets and his face begins to glow. And his face is glowing. And it says he's radiant. He's bright. He's shining. He's been illuminated. Because God has highlighted a man. You can't fake what's in your face. Jesus said when your eye is single, your whole body will be filled with light. You can't fake what's on your face, and you can always see it in your eyes. Stephen is standing out in the streets as they begin to come against him. And it says that they begin to criticize him, and there he stands. It says that they begin to determine in their hearts that they're going to kill him. And there he stands. It says that they begin to gnash their teeth, and they begin to run at him. This is the moment where 90% of us are going to take off. But there he stands. And as they cover their ears and as others begin to throw rocks, it says that Stephen is not running. Rocks are flying. Insults are being hurled. 
there he stands. And as the rocks are flying, and as he begins to bear the consequences of his love and his devotion, his commitment to the one that he will not betray, the one that his life has been radically aligned with. See, this is one of the purposes of the Spirit, to radically align our lives with God, with what he cares about, and how that's actually happening in the moment of history that we're living in. And Stephen had been radically aligned with God himself, with what God said mattered to him, and Stephen had given himself to that. And it had been 10 years of development that readied him for the rocks. It had been 10 years of development that prepared him for the moment where he would realize in his final moments that he had a decision to make. But he doesn't run. And he doesn't try to fight back. He doesn't try to prove himself. The Bible says that he actually begins to intercede. And he lifts his voice as he is breathing his last. And he says, don't hold this against them. Because they don't understand. Don't hold it against them. They don't understand you and they don't understand what you're doing. And it says that as he was stoned to death, that there was one there as he breathed his last that he died at the feet of. And it was Saul. And Saul was there giving his approval to the death of Stephen. That's chapter 7. Chapter 8 begins by telling us that Saul was giving himself to finding all of these that had aligned their lives with the way. That he was hell-bent on finding them, destroying them, jailing them, persecuting them even executing them. It says that Paul was determined that he was going to put an end to what it was that this group of people that said they were the way God was working out what he was doing. Paul was zealous. Paul was a fiery one. Paul was committed to what he thought was the right way that what God was doing was supposed to actually happen in his moment of history. And Paul was determined. He had legal authorization to find them and jail them and even execute them. And as you turn over to chapter 9, it tells us that Paul is breathing, breathing murderous threats against the church. We understand the church is God's idea. It doesn't belong to man. It didn't start with man, so it doesn't belong to man. Jesus said, I will build my church. Matthew 16 is the first time you hear the word church. And it comes out of the mouth of Jesus, not out of the mouth of a man. And Jesus will only say it after they have said, you are king and we will give everything to you. But Paul is breathing murderous threats against the church. But it says that all of a sudden, as he is a hundred miles an hour doing things his own way, that a bright light shines from heaven and that he's knocked down off his high horse and that a voice speaks to him. And Paul says, who are you, Lord? Like, who are you? The idea is, I thought I knew you. Everything that I've been taught about you, I'm now seeing you in a way that is challenging to everything I thought I ever understood about who you are. Who are you? The second question that Paul asks is, what must I do? What do you want me to do about the way that you've revealed yourself to me? Because I can't go back to my religious habits. I can't go back to the empty ways of life. I can't keep giving myself to the definition of success that was created prior to the encounter that I just had. I've now seen you. 
You've revealed yourself to me. There's an encounter that you've brought to my life. I now know who it is that you actually are. I know what it is that you're jealous for. I know the things that you care about. I know the way that you are working those things out in the nations and in this hour of history. And I just can't do my own thing. And I just can't do anything. If there's anything to do, it has to be the thing that you said you actually want. Paul says, what must I do? Here's the idea. It is going to require a Stephen-type witness for a Paul-type conversion. It is going to take a Stephen-style witness, those who are radically aligned with God and his purposes, Those who even unto the point of death have given themselves to bring the knowledge of God to their generation. Those who understand the things that matter most to God. And like Paul said in Philippians 1, now by life or by death, my great desire is that God would be glorified in me. And that through my life, he would now have the things that he wants. This is the assassin. This is the one who was jailing and executing. Who now says, my resume, all of what used to be important, all of those things I used to think were making me a success story you can have it it's garbage put it in the trash because now I've seen him now I know what he wants my life has been radically aligned and if it takes my own life I will give even my life to see God have the things that he's after And it's going to take a Stephen type witness in our generation to crack the hearts of those who are hardened and those who are hostile. (laughs) It is going to take a Stephen-type witness, those who glow in a dark moment, those who are bright, those whose face shine, those who know what God is after and have a confidence that my definition of success is now ultimately determined by one voice, one set of eyes, one opinion. The world no longer has the right to determine what success is. Your own ideas or emotions no longer have the right to determine what success is. In an ultimate way, success is how much of our life can we give to the things that God has said are most important to him. To him, how much of my life can I give to the things that matter most to God? Because if it matters, make it matter. If it matters, make it matter. And the idea is, do you have room to care about what he cares about? Do you have room to care about what he cares about? Does what matters to him matter to you? Can you say that all of what you are laboring for is in alignment with the things that God has ultimately said are his purpose? The things that God has said he wants most. The things that God has said He is orchestrating and superintending time and creation to make sure that it arrives at a specific destination. Can you say that what matters to me is what matters to him? Can you say that by life or by death, I am going to give myself to make sure that God has the things that he desires most? Is your heart on fire to live as a powerful witness and a demonstration of the things that God wants? Because this is what Acts is trying to tell us. That when you live the way God says to live, you get the witness that God needs most. When you do the things that God has prescribed, you get the product that God longs for. 
When you give your way to a way of life and a development in a way of life alongside of other covenant lovers, covenant loyalty to Jesus, covenant loyalty to others, when you give yourself to this way of life, you get the product because God has a wisdom and his prescription always produces. And if we are not producing, then we have to look at our prescription and what we call our wisdom. Because God has made it very simple, and he has laid it out very clearly. You give yourself to this way of life, and I'll have what I want. You give yourself to this way of life with others, and I will develop you the way that I desire to develop you. I will have a people that are readied to reveal and to bring the knowledge of God to their hour of history. So if we are not satisfied with the results, then we have to look at the recipe. Because his prescription produces. And it is so simple that it is offensive because man always wants to complicate in order to be able to point things back to himself because of his wisdom, his strategy, his ideas. Look at what I just launched. Look at what we just started. Look at how we just coined this new move, these new ideas. God has said, if you do this, then I will get this. And if I get this, we will shake your generation. We will shake your hour of history. We will shake the city, the region, the nation. And so I have come to ask you tonight, does what matters to God matter to you? Or has your heart been filled with lesser lovers? Have you fallen in love with other things that are not ultimate things? Have you determined, like the rich young ruler, that there's real estate? There's material things in this life and in this world. Have you fallen in love with fame and riches and platform and power, prestige, your own image, your own name? Have you fallen in love with your idea of your lifestyle or your way of life? Have you fallen in love with things that belong to this world and ultimately are going to pass and to fade? Have you become captivated? Have you become a prisoner of things that are immediate, that are not serving God's desires for things that are ultimate? And does what matter to God actually matter to you? Acts tells us, that God is ready and willing to create fiery, powerful, living demonstrations. Man, this is what I want to give my life to. I want to see God raise up pockets of people, families that are on fire, communities that have been baptized into presence and glory. I want to see God raise up a bride that will shine in this moment. The bride that will take her place. But is this what we want? Or has our heart been calloused and satisfied with other things? Man, tonight we have an opportunity. Like they did. And like so many others have done. To say, what must I do about this? I don't care if you've been serving for two days or for 20 years. What must I do in response to what has been revealed? Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, visit our website, burningones.org, or download our app.